In an increasingly complex world, Greif Philanthropic Solutions is proud to sponsor Hat Radio and the one and only Avram Rosenzweig. No one is better than Avram at simplifying the art of communication, providing inspiration, and unifying people of all backgrounds. GPS is there to help you navigate the charity landscape. Avram is there to help you navigate life. Step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height Hi and welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig and this is episode 42. Our guest today is Giddy Mammon uh, and we're looking forward to schmoozing with him. Giddy is a type A person. He is an immigration lawyer par excellence. He goes for the tough cases. He's got triplets. <laughs> a greater anomaly than you think. He is a Jewish activist. He's a motorcyclist. He's one of those really colorful, interesting people, and he comes from Morocco. So if you've ever had Moroccan food, you know what fuel sort of powers him, pushes him forward. But before we do that, in the last few weeks, I've been talking about the Jewish people a little bit in the context of did you know? There are a lot of stereotypes out there about my people, and I would like to take this opportunity on Hat Radio to break those down. And I want to do that because there are people who are sitting on the fence about Jews who don't really understand them. And why should you? Why should you? I mean, how much do I know about Greek people? How much do I know about people from the Congo? Very little. So don't be disappointed in yourself. We generally know mostly about ourselves. So what I want to do is share information with you, which might help you understand that there is not a Zionist plot out there. Jews are not penny pinchers. We dealt with that last week. And that we do not only help ourselves. And that's what I want to talk about this week for a couple minutes. So stay with me here. And then we'll go to my dear friend, Giddy Mammon. I started an organization called Via Hafta. I've talked about that a lot. It's a Jewish humanitarian organization. And the goal was to encourage all Jews and all people to play a role in what we call Tikkun Olam, which is repairing the world. We did that by traveling around the planet and helping peoples in need. We spent many, many, many months in Guyana, South America, setting up makeshift medical clinics, similar to what you would see in MASH, inviting people to come out and uh, really to, you know, use of our resources. I, I, I say without any hesitation whatsoever, we saved many lives. We helped many people who had vitamin A deficiencies. We help individuals who had high blood pressure, and that's a real problem in Guyana. We've also worked in Zimbabwe. We've worked in Haiti. We've worked in Turkey, Ducha, Turkey, when there was an earthquake there in 1998. In short, the Jewish community has 
really put up a lot of resources to work around the world through Via Hofta, which is here in Toronto. Now we work with the homeless exclusively, but we have quite a resume. Israel itself is known for its international crisis response. If you take a look, uh, Google, just Google Israel and crisis response, you will find a plethora of examples of Israel sending army, uh, sending uh, lay folk to countries all over the world, even if they are enemies of the state, even if they are at war with Israel. I know that Vihafta, together in partnership with Israel, uh, did work in Pakistan. Now, I had to spend my entire holiday convincing my board that we should do that because Pakistan is certainly not friendly to Israel. But in at the end, we did raise money to help the people after floods. And I'm very proud to say that Israel sent over individuals to help on the ground there, as we say, and to do uh, tertiary medical care. After there was an earthquake in Iran, and, and I don't think it's a huge secret that Iran essentially wants to destroy Israel, both Israel and diaspora crisis response teams uh, helped out in that country. Uh, I don't believe we were able to get people on the ground. I don't think so. But we were certainly able to get resources over there. I remember once we did a crisis response for Afghanistan. Again, there was a natural disaster that occurred. And we sent over hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical care, pharmaceuticals. And they accepted it. But we got a letter from the entity uh, who accepted, and I think they were the students of a university who were involved in some medical care for their people. It was a real brash letter. It's like, don't think that we like you, Jewish people. Don't think that we like you, Israel. We will accept this for our people, but that doesn't change our views of you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. I was always hoping that it would. I was always hoping that our humanitarian response would, in fact, uh, change some minds and change some thinkings about who we are as a people and who Israel is as a state. And I'm sure that it did. In this case, not so much. Anyways, please note that the Jewish people are not as insular as you might think. Certainly a lot of our resources, most of our resources, are directed towards care for the poor, uh, women who can't afford a dressing, a, a wedding gown. Um, there are all kinds of charities that exist within the Jewish community for the Jewish community. But that being said, there are millions of dollars that are being sent outside of the Jewish community to help people abroad. Now, again, I don't say this to be arrogant. I don't say us say this to push us above and beyond any other people's? No, not at all. I say this because it's important for you to know this. It's important for people to recognize that we are a sharing people. And at the very core of who we are is the concept of the Haftalarel Hadkamocha, which is loving your brother and your sister as you love yourself. So there you go. Feel free to email me at avram at hatradio.ca if you have any questions, and I'd be more than happy to answer them. So here I am with my very dear friend, Giddy Mammon. Welcome, Giddy. Thanks for having me, Avram. Really you, excited to be here, buddy. You got a great smile on your face. <laughs> Get, well, you, I don't see you every day. No, right? we don't see each other we, we, that much. We've known each other forever, and, you know, we're busy. So Plus, I don't have any immigration issues. <laughs> that's right. You, you haven't faced deportation, <laughs> so, uh, so I haven't been able to make any money with you. So uh, <laughs> besides that, you know. So people say, well, why Giddy Mammon as a guest? And here's my 
response to them. Yeah, I want to hear this. Why, why am I a guest? Right, because you are a force, my friend. You cool. are a force. And I was telling you this during the break. You're an incredible human being. You're uh, you're a Moroccan Jew, and I love that about you. I love. Well, there you go. Not everybody's cup of tea, but why not? I love that about you. I love Moroccan Jews. <laughs> I love the food. I love the women. I love the synagogues. Everything about you guys, right? Although I'm happy I'm Ashkenazi. You know, today I went to an Ashkenazi bris. Did you? Sephardic rabbi. Apparently, there was some problem, but they pull in a Sephardic rabbi. I think, hey, great. That was fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess- You don't they, see that every day. You do not? And they're mixing things up nowadays, 100%. thank God, right? Like you married an Ashkenazi woman. Very Ashkenazi. Weinberger was her name. Weinberger, maiden? half Polish, half Hungarian. Both parents are survivors. And really no trace of a family yeah, left. Yeah. They were do, all wiped out. Do so they it's... like you? <laughs> I hope so. You got to ask them, right, buddy? I don't know. They, I, I think they do. Okay. so you're... Listen, I've been married to their daughter for 30 years. Yeah, they better. And I haven't taken off, and she hasn't taken off. Right. We've sort of tolerated each other, so I think that's pretty good. So you're a Moroccan Jew. I love that about you. You're an Im- immigration lawyer. But right. not only are you an immigration lawyer, the way you explained it to me once was you take on the very tough cases, right? Yeah, well, we, we've been at it for a long time. You yeah. know, I used to work at the airport as an immigration officer when I was in law school. That's how you started out, right? Right. I mean, you know, what did I know about immigration? I never thought I'd end up in immigration. It was a complete fluke. I just applied for a summer job while I was in law school, and they sent me out to the airport, and I worked there for a summer, and then I got called to the bar, and I went and I opened up my own law practice. At 25. At 25. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I was pretty young. I had to get out of law. I, I had to get out of university quickly because I didn't have a lot of money. So I borrowed about six grand from my grandmother. She was one of the greatest grandmas you could ever have. What, what was her name? Fortuna Amsela. Fortuna. Yeah. And when I was 15, I used to go from Fleming, you know, uh, over there on uh, the high that, school. That's right. The high school. Yeah. And I used to ride my motorcycle to her apartment. <laughs> I love your motorcycle stories. <laughs> I love your so I used stories. to ride my motorcycle over to her apartment because she would call me and she'd say, come for lunch and I'll make you your, your favorite, which was a mixture of scrambled eggs and french fries if you could believe it <laughs> and so i'd have lunch there and then i'd play cards with my grandfather yeah who was the funniest guy and when i'd beat him i'd make fun of him you know and he'd laugh and i'd laugh it was just it was did a, you it was make great fun times. of him in french yeah and he'd make fun of me when he would win he would like laugh ah! <laughs> like that. and it, it was great i was really tight so with make, both make of fun them. of me in french for a second i want to hear your french oh no 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 that's you, you went to my, it my, my french is a disaster and sometimes they do actually radio interviews on on topics on a on a hot topic and they can't find a french-speaking immigration lawyer and they call me and then they convince me to do it and my mom listens to those things says you should not have done <laughs> is that, that she says yeah yeah and well how's your yiddish <laughs> yiddish <laughs> better <laughs> abyssal i speak abyssal, abyssal. Yeah. so so those are a few reasons i had you on you're a very colorful human being and you also had triplets well i didn't my wife your wife had triplets yeah yeah yeah, yeah. unbelievable so we have a 24 year old daughter hannah yes uh who we adore and love and she's uh, studying now at uh, mcmaster and then uh, when she was about four or five we had the triplets and they're now 20 years old so that was quite the trip I remember when you guys had triplets. You, you, I don't. I, every time, I don't. <laughs> it was crazy. Get, every time I would see, I go, "Get, how's it going?" You go, "Ah, oh, Avram is hell." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you go from one kid to four like overnight, and you know they're not healthy kids. They're all like you know micro preemies. You know, they're uh, like three pounds. They're born early. Yeah. So one of them had you know uh, a couple of operations. It was very serious. It was it was very difficult. It wasn't like having three kids. It was like taking care of four or five. Yeah. Because you had to deal with the medical issues. You know, like uh, at that time Becky had a, a bag on her stomach because she had some of her intestines removed. 
Um, so it was very, very, very difficult time. I mean, it's really, uh, I, I'm not joking. A, a lot of it I don't even remember anymore because it was just like a, like a, a blur. blur, you know. But then the truth is after about a year, year and a half, when you get over all the, you know, all, all the initial stuff, it's pretty easy yeah. to be honest with you because they teach each other. You know, you teach yes. one how to do this and yeah. she teaches her sisters and then they help each other, you know, tie their shoes and brush their hair. And it's, you know, so it's, uh, it's pretty easy. And Are you, you a good dad to daughters, to girls? I mean, I think so. I'm, I'm really connected to them. Like, I mean, yesterday I, I took the day off of work to help one of my kids uh, take care of a lot of paperwork that she needs. Uh, she's making Aliyah right now. So uh, we have a lot of... she's moving to Israel? Yeah, she's been there for the last couple of years. So what did you have to do? What kind of paperwork? Well, you know, she's making, uh, you know, she's uh, moving ahead in the army. Yeah. She's in the army. So uh, she's doing a four-year stint. So uh, she has to make Aliyah in order to move forward. So we had to do all the stuff. I mean, everything like, you know, get her prescription glasses, you know, dentist, uh, you know, doctor's visit, all that good stuff. And, you know, a letter from the rabbi that she's Jewish. You know, we went bouncing from place to place. So I look after my kids the best way I can. How was that day? How was it yesterday? They're nice Uh, days, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I love it. You know, I, I, you know, I don't. For two years, she has, she's been out of the house. I only get to see her very, very infrequently. What's that like? It's hard. I mean, you know, today with technology, you know, I could see her on FaceTime and, you know, I'll always, uh, I'll always, uh, you know, step out of a meeting to, to see her if she FaceTimes me. But it's hard, you know, when you, when you sort of hug your kid, you squish your kid, you yeah. can, you know, smell them and feel them. And it's very different. You know, it's, it's a very different feeling. And, and you don't know, like, when they're in a good mood or a bad mood because you see them in, you know, gaps of days, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not easy. And especially now I got four daughters in four different cities. Yeah. So that she's not the only one I have to worry about. Did you ever wish for a son? That's a really good question. I don't think, uh, A, the answer is I don't regret having four girls. Yes. Would I have uh, four boys also? Hell yes. I mean, the bigger the better, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, the triplets was a bit of a shock to us. So by the time... We got done with the triplets. I was in no mood to do anything <laughs> more to build on that. I think I, I think I, I think I had a long enough trip. I hear you, bud. <laughs> so no, no. But do I walk around saying, "Oh man, I don't have a boy"? No way. But, I, I, I I I drive so much pleasure for the four, from the four girls. That I, I couldn't care less. Is there any reality to the cultural piece of it? Having a boy really is the goal of a Moroccan man, or is that just a fallacy in our day and age? So I'll tell you, when my dad had a daughter, I have two older sisters. When my eldest sister was born, he was not happy. I'm, I'm happy to it. tell you. He wasn't. <laughs> yeah, he was not happy. Legend goes, it was not a good day for my mom. Really? That's, oh, hell, I'm telling you. When my second sister was born, they tell me he <laughs> slept in the car. <laughs> he was so bad. Really? He was that upset? I'm telling you, man, that's Morocco, right? That's, that's, Morocco, that's yeah. back in the day. You know, yeah. you're talking about the late 50s in Morocco. It's not exactly a period of enlightenment. You know, so. <laughs> nicely said. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I try to be diplomatic that on your show here. I've got to be careful Thank though. I'm you. saying. You're welcome to, to so, curse. So then, so then what happens is uh, one day he goes to shul for Simchat Torah. Right. He comes back home, and I was born at home. On the Jewish holiday. On, right, like right during Shacharit. I was born. He comes home. He finds a baby boy there. Goes 
crazy. Yeah. Apparently, he threw a bris. You know, he bought hundreds of squabs, and they brought this from. You know, just, just it was just crazy. You know, and uh, people tell me, I'll, I'll I'll never forget your bris. I remember I was at your bris, and your dad was going crazy. What, what that, city was it in Morocco? Casablanca. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you moved to when you were three, right? Your family. Three. We came here when I was three years old. So, did your father treat you like a king? Oh uh, no! Or did that I don't fit, think did he that treated. No, 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 did no, that no. no. My dad, my my dad was a no nonsense guy. You know, if you were stepping out of line, he gave you that look, man. I wasn't being treated like a king. Would he give you a hit too? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you don't mince words. <laughs> no, no, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Do you, it, do you resent that at all, no. or is that just the way it was? I, I don't really know that I knew anything different. Yeah. And I mean, you're not talking like a beating, you know, the guy goes, gets a stick or a belt and beats the crap out of you. That, you know, I can never condone. But yeah, you know, you'd get smacked if, you know, you know, I was never, we were never allowed to be rude, you know, with our uncles. Like even till today, I call my uncles, uncle so-and-so. I, we, we never address people impolitely. But if I stepped out of line, if I didn't do something that I was supposed to do, yeah, I'd get it across. Did you do that with your girls too? Never. No, I, I also don't. No, I, I'm not. I've never done it. I can't say that I haven't felt like pretty annoyed. Well, that's a separate just, piece. Yeah, that's a separate piece. You know, and and I'm not. I'm not so sure that. And again, I'm not talking about hitting kids. I mean, I'm not talking about hitting kids like like. Uh, I'm talking about like a like a smack that you know you, you feel it's not painful, but you feel a disappointment. But but I think that intelligent people can probably get that message across, maybe even more effectively. By just disappointment. Well, what was your mom like? Well, my mom... She's had, still with us, right? Yeah, for sure. Yes. My dad, you know, my dad passed your dad away passed. back in Your mom should be well. It's 120. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Rod. She's, she's sweet. She's great. You know, we just had Simchat Torah, which is, you know, my Hebrew birthday. So Simchat Torah, uh, she always used to help make a big kiddush at, uh, at uh, our synagogue at Tiferet Israel. Shout out to Tiferet Israel. I, Shout out. You see that? See that? Good, good for so, you. There you go. I got consummate it. activist. <laughs> consummate activist. Yeah. So is your mom little? I have this image of her being little. Well, she's getting shorter somehow. They're shrinking, not, she's right? shrinking. I'm not sure what. How what, old what, is she now? Oh, uh, in her eighty-three, eighty-four. Is she, I, and she's going to kill me if she finds it, out that I said this. And the then I'll cons- blame you. Is she, you could do that. I yeah. don't mind. Yeah. Is she the consummate Moroccan mother? Hundred like, percent. Very doting. 100%. Cooks and bakes all the time. Yeah, yeah. Like if you go to her house to visit, is there always food on the table? Hundred percent. Yeah, right. Hundred percent. She lives alone, right? She yeah. she's got her own uh, condo up at uh, in Thornhill, uh, so she doesn't really have anybody to cook for. So she's looking for me to come up there so she can make me something. And she, you know, she bribes me. Oh, if you come, I'll make you this and that. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, of course. I'm How is that, that for you when you go there and you? I love it. There's you do. I love it. You do. I mean, look. Uh, uh, I I was just raised on sort of Moroccan food things that. Uh, bring back tremendous memories. You know, for us, the holidays, you know, uh, even Shabbat, we were never allowed to leave the house on a Friday night. You might as well ask to go to the moon. You're not going anywhere, you know. And at the time, I was like, oh, my dad, he's unreasonable. All my friends got to go to a concert. They go to parties. They go do this. I got to sit at home and, you know, uh, just sit with my sisters and my brother and my parents and do nothing but eat and, and, you know, go to sleep. Now that I got four kids of my own, I got to be honest with you, uh, there was a lot of hidden wisdom there that a, that a teenager doesn't get. How so? You don't get it. Like at the end of the day, it's not your buddy that you go drinking with when you're 18 or 19 or getting into trouble with or chasing girls with. That's not the guy who's going to be with you at the end of the days. Yeah. Um, it's going to be, you know, your mom, your dad, your, your, your brothers, your sisters, your kids. 
sure, you're going to have a friend or two here at the end of the day that really matters. But, you know, uh, over the course of a career where I've met tens of thousands of people and friends, you know, in different organizations, at the end of the day, when it's a Shabbat meal or something, you know, there's just a very small, intimate crowd and we have our own little routine, you know, and uh, it's uh, it's very special. And I think I think kids today who don't have that experience yeah. are missing out on the real sort of nectar of life, you know, the real sweet juice of life. Family. Family, um, tradition. And I think now about my kids, like my kids, like I said, the triplets are 20 and my eldest is 24. I think they're starting to, to get that. Mm-hmm. I don't have to fight with them to stay home and find ways of saying no and trying to accommodate them. So I'll tell them, bring your friends here, you know. And uh, Are you Orthodox? Well, it depends who you ask. So well, I'm, I'm, I'm asking sh- you. I, I've, I've been Shomer Shabbat since I was a kid. Which means you don't drive on the Sabbath? N- never driven. Do you do anything on the Sabbath you're not supposed to? <laughs> I, I'm wondering if anybody from my congregation is, is listening. listening. <laughs> Did you when no. you were a kid? Because you said no, you would have gone out on a worked. Friday night. Never. I never. No, I didn't go anywhere on a Friday. No, but I'm saying given the druthers, you would have gone. Yeah, I would have gone. Yeah. I would have gone, you know, th- th- here or there. I, I probably would have gotten into a car when I was a teenager, and I probably did. Um, but uh, today I, I don't at all. We don't turn on any lights. Or we don't use any electrical appliances, uh, any of that sort of thing. I wear a keep all the time. I go to shul every Shabbat. I don't go during during the week because our, our shul doesn't have right now uh, weekday services. But if they did, I, I would go. Do you like being Orthodox? I don't, know if, I don't know if I can answer that question. I love being Jewish and in any way or form. I, I love the fact that I'm part of this sort of Jewish rebirth, you know, uh, associated with us going back to our homeland. Yes. You know, I think about, you know, what we've gone through in history and how we've been, you know, since the the temple was destroyed, we just went really scattered all over the universe and just somehow after this terrible Shoah that we, we witnessed, we all came back together to the same place we left 2,000 years ago. And somehow created a, a people out of people from every country and every culture in the world. And somehow we formed an army, even though we spoke different languages, yeah. had different levels of education. We came together with our Safer Torahs and our prayer books, and we look after 2,000 years and see they're basically identical. Not a word has changed. We gave birth to a, a language that's been dead for 2,000 years. And we've become innovative. We've become, we've formed a democracy. Whether you like it or you don't like it, you think it's perfect or not, I just love owning a piece of that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I liked in your description. You said you're 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 an unabashed Zionist. You're a huge oh, yeah. lover of Israel. I want to ask you about pride, because you seem to be a a, a prideful person. I mean, when we talk about your children, you're 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 exude happiness and 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 pride when we talk about uh my greatest accomplishment are my four kids yeah but it seems to me that you come from a culture or maybe it's your dna uh whereby you have huge amounts of appreciation for who you are what you are what you were born into your appreciation oozes out of you okay you seem to love who you are like the life that you were born into yeah, look, I wasn't born into like this rich, sophisticated background, you know. Uh, what did your dad do, by the way? My dad was a jobber. 
in, in Morocco, he bought everything and anything. You know, the American army was pulling out. And so he would buy empty potato sacks. You know, they would send potatoes by the billions to Morocco to the soldiers, and he would buy the empty potato sacks. Was he good at it? He was very good at it. He was it. a sharp entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, you, you make it sound pretty sophisticated. He was... Uh, he was he, grassroots. He, he, he was, yeah, he was, he was a guy who, you know, who had basic elementary education. Yeah. Uh, he had his own sort of general store, and he bought stuff, and he sold it at a profit. Like I said, the Americans would leave their Jeeps behind. They wouldn't leave the, the whole Jeep. They would cut it into two so that it wouldn't be usable for whatever reasons and he would buy the two pieces of the jeep you and know put them together and sell it no not put them together sell it as scrap metal but okay. he could make money out of anything and that and when he came to canada that's exactly what he did he, he would buy bankruptcies from the bank so you know if you had a, a convenience store that went bankrupt you had a, 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 a i don't know a textile company if you had a furniture manufacturer if you had a chemical uh, manufacturer. We even bought a. Him and his brothers even bought a pulp and paper mill. Did they? Yeah, I mean that was uh, that was later. But they really came. Like my father came to Toronto, not speaking a word of English. That's yeah, a phenomenal thing, isn't it? If you think about it, uh, you, you know, I'll tell you. Everyone. How many kids in arm? He at that time there was three of us. Like I was three. the baby. Yeah. I was a baby, and they came to Canada, not speaking a word of English, not having a prearranged job. He only had a brother here, uh, so that's how he ended up, pick, you know, picking Toronto. When he moved into the neighborhood, if you can believe it, and this is why I'm so crazy about my synagogue. Yeah. If I haven't mentioned it like twelve times already in yeah. this interview, yeah. So he came to Canada, and he said, "Okay, where can I find?" Uh, a synagogue. So somebody pointed him to Shari Tefila. So he goes to Shari Tefila and he comes home with like post traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> you know, he didn't understand a goddamn word. <laughs> well, we should explain to the listener that is an, that's an Ashkenazi synagogue. Hardcore Ashkenazi. Which yeah. means it's, it's whereby your father came from North Africa. Right. He, for some reason, he was directed towards a synagogue that was Eastern European. Right, because there was no Sephardic shuls in the neighborhood. And never the twain shall meet, really, right? Right, so he went there. He came and says, oh, my God, what the hell did I do? I yeah. think I've ruined our lives. <laughs> this is insanity. What, what am I doing here? Right. Yeah. And my mother, my mother also had a traumatic experience. She came to Canada, and, you know, they used to go to the market in Casablanca, and they would, you know, she would pick out a live chicken, and he would, you know, cut it and feather it and bag it for her within like 20 minutes or whatever it is. And that's how she bought chickens. Right. And they bought fresh vegetables from the market. She came here and she asked where she could go buy kosher chicken. And they pointed her to Loblaws at the time. And so she goes in there. She goes, well, you know, where do I find the chicken? They pointed her to a freezer. And in the freezer was this plastic wrapped <laughs> chicken. Right? It was like hard as a rock, and she bursts out crying. How oh. am I going to feed this to my husband? Oh. I mean, he's going to kill me. Like, what is this? <laughs> so they like they really landed like on a different planet. Yeah. And and I I was going to say, Avram, you know, I've been bringing uh, refugees and immigrants to Canada for over thirty two years, and I still can't get over how brave it is for them to pack up everything, trust someone like me with their future, and assure them that I will help them to get them in Canada on solid footing um, where they're going to have, you know, a new 
home, a new job, a new career, where their kids are going to be educated, where their kids are going to meet friends and meet their future spouses, and where their grandkids are going to be born. Uh, it's a it's a remarkable thing. And, and I'll tell you, Avram, the thing that makes it crazy is that I have never lived more than two kilometers from where we're sitting right here. Right. Because right. my father never, like, uh, my father helped to establish our little shul, and uh, it was in the neighborhood. It was within walking distance. And because of that shul, I've never looked for a house outside of walking distance from that shul. So is it possible then, Giddy, that you getting into immigration was not happenstance? Well, I certainly didn't plan on it. I understand, but for the way you speak right now, it sounds like there was a certain poetry to finding your way into it. Listen, God, you know, man plans and God laughs, right? So when I was in law school, I was going to be a big shot, right? I was going to work in some big downtown law firm and I was going to do research in a wood paneled library and go to expensive restaurants with big shot clients and within a week of articling i articled an amazing law firm within a week of articling what was it called uh rosenberg smith Patton, and hyman still around uh no they've busted up but they've produced great judges uh, justice alvin rosenberg ted matlow uh great people came out of that 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 firm and i this is not a criticism of the firm it was a great firm but i understood that maybe Suing people, maybe doing corporate law, doing tax rollovers Mm -hmm. was just not going to excite me. And uh, anyways, to make a long story short, I ended up opening up my own practice the second I got out of law school, uh, the the second I got called to the bar. And by chance, I happened to find myself in Dundas and Dover Court because it was cheap rent. And the entire neighborhood was Portuguese and they were all looking for immigration help. And it wasn't big money, but it was going to pay my rent. Yeah. And um, a shout out to the Portuguese people because they were the sweetest people. They were salt of the earth, hardworking. They trusted me. And I just loved it. I just loved being able to take someone that was facing deportation or facing removal, facing uncertainty, and them trusting me with their families and helping to craft a solution so that they could stay. And it's like a bug. I, I've, I've, until today, I can't get rid of that bug. I just, I just love it. That's Is there a particular love. story that comes to mind? I remember in our discussions, you told me that you, you go, yeah, like the, the end, you're the end of the road guy, right? I'm the so end of the road guy. If someone's at the airport, they phone Giddy Mammon, right? They'll probably give us a call. At the end of the day, they say, like, have oh. you gone out to the airport? Someone's about to board the plane oh, and you do oh, your immigration? All the time. We, we, we do that all the time. Uh, there's lots and lots of stories that we did that uh, were literally, you know, waiting for the phone to ring from the minister's office, waiting for that call to stop the removal, pull the guy off the plane. Um, More often do they not? Do they pull them off the plane? No, no, not not that often. Let me tell you something. That takes a lot of work, Avram. We're a big operation now. We're almost about 50 people in the firm. Um, The government has an army of officers. They got an army of lawyers in the Department of Justice, and they get to make the rules and they get to interpret the rules. So we got to be pretty clever and we got to work pretty hard to make that happen. So, Gid, when you get the call... And the person on the other end of the phone says, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. That person has to board the plane. You phone them, you phone their family, and you give them the bad news? Well, usually, yeah, we often have to give bad news, Avram. There, there are 
what how many how many p- people are there on the planet like eight billion people we're or something up around like that? there now yeah, yeah. okay yeah. of eight billion people guess how many of those people want to live in canada if they had the opportunity what like virtually all of china virtually yeah. all of africa yeah. virtually all south america yeah. right asia right and virtually, we let we let in three hundred thousand a year that's right? it yeah right there could be three billion people who want to come but we're only going to pick up to three hundred thousand or so so it's a selection system. You don't you don't get to win every case. That's just not how the business works. So you have to be prepared to lose. And if you don't have the stomach for that, you don't have the fortitude. This is the wrong business for you. But um, yeah, I, I mean, you're asking me like for, uh, sort of a, for an example story. I remember my very first high profile case. The funniest case. I, I can I can say his name because it was all over the paper and it's it's public knowledge. Yeah, is this guy named Muhammad Iqbal. Guy came from Pakistan, right? He was an Ahmadi. Went to court. He made a refugee claim because it's very well known that they're persecuted in Pakistan. So he went to uh, he went to uh, to court. His lawyer did not bring evidence that he was an Ahmadi, so he got refused. And he went to an appeal. It was refused. He went to another lawyer. The lawyer couldn't do anything about the case. So. Uh, she calls me and she says, listen, Giddy, I got this guy. I mean, he's got this letter now from the Ahmadi Association. For sure, he's an Ahmadi, but there's no avenue of appeal. I don't know what to do. He's not qualified for this. He's not qualified for that. So she asked me to take a look at the case. And this is way back in the maybe, I think, early 90s. So mm-hmm. I was only out of three, four, five years. So I, I said, okay. So I met this guy in my office on a Sunday morning. And you know what you look like on a Sunday morning. You just put on a pair of sweatpants and You're a T-shirt, right? Disheveled. Yeah. You know, you don't brush your hair. You, you haven't <laughs> shaved. So the guy comes to my office, and I'm talking to him, and I've got nothing, man. Over on my sortia, I had zero. You know, avenues of appeal were done. It was just bad news all along. So he says, okay, so, okay, great. So you can't keep me here, but can you keep me here until next week? I said, what's happening next week? He says, well, I'm getting an award next week. I said, what are you getting an award for? Check this out, right? Crazy. What are you getting an award for? He says, well, from the police. I said, which police? He said, the Toronto police. I said, why you, Mohammed?" would get an award for the, the Toronto police. police. Like, yeah. like, who the hell are you, right? Yeah, this is a good story. I like right. it. He's yeah. working in a donut shop serving donuts. <laughs> I figured maybe he serves the best donuts in, in Toronto, the world. In the world. Yeah. So I said, what happened? And and he's like, you know, he's he was so sort of innocent, nicest guy in the world, right? He says, well, a guy comes into the donut shop uh-huh. and he takes out the knife and he says, you have to give me all of your money. <laughs> he says, I cannot give you the money because this is not my money. This is my boss's money. So the guy starts arguing with him. <laughs> and he insists on taking all the money in the till. So Mohammed jumps over the, the counter. And, he, and he's no big deal. I mean, the guy's like 150 pounds. Scrawny. Scrawny guy jumps on the guy, <laughs> wrestles him to the ground. <laughs> the customers call the police and the police show up and see this crazy lunatic wrestling some robber down to the ground <laughs> and they they yell at him they tell him are you crazy what yeah, was you that should all? be doing <laughs> this, <laughs> they, <do> this. <laughs> they figured since you risk your life we're gonna give you For some donut some sort of an award <laughs> so i said you're kidding me i he said yeah is that important i said not really but let me see if i can <laughs> let me I mean, I can't, I can't go to the federal court and say the guy wants to pick up his, his, his certificate of bravery or whatever. So anyway, to make a long story short, I, uh, I said, okay, I'm gonna call, I'm gonna call the media, I'm gonna call the Toronto Star. So I called the Toronto Star and I said, yeah, listen, uh, my name is so and so. Yeah, what do you want? I said, well, my client's being deported. So what? I said, well, he's 
supposed to be getting an award for bravery next week. He says, hold on a second. Ten seconds later, he says, where can we meet you? Is he with you now? Really? Promise you. So I lied to them. I said, oh, we're not available right now. I think we're available like at 11 o'clock this yeah. morning. And the reason why, because I look like you, a homeless person. You want to clean up. Right. And I knew there was a gap, you know, the store, the gap on Queen Street. Yes. So at least I can get like a button down shirt or something like that. So, <laughs> and I knew that they were open at 10 o'clock. So I ran there at 10 o'clock. And I and I op- I I bought a shirt in this most disgusting tie. They had like a like a Bay City roller tie or something like that. And I put that on, and I had my picture taken for the Toronto Star. <laughs> we went to the federal court. The place was packed with news people. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, I'm telling amazing. you, I'm, the judge comes in, right? Looks at the crowd. Basically, Avram, you got to understand. I have zero to argue. Zero to argue. The judge comes in in about. Less than five minutes, doesn't even, he asks you, basically, you're looking for a stay of removal, right, Mr. Mammy? Yeah. He turns to the Department of Justice and he says, basically, you're opposing it, right? Yeah. And he says, well, I've read the materials. I'm going to order the uh, the stay of removal. I, I said, like, what? <laughs> and then I learned on that day the most important lesson of my life. And that was? Which is the law matters, right? But the law sits in a basket of real world realities. Yep. You understand? Yeah. And a judge does not want to face the press and look like the bad guy. Yeah, right. Right. And right. so now I, I decide, okay, so now I got to stay removed. I'm going to apply for a humanitarian case for this guy. And there was a program at the time that if you had a job and you could do this and that, you could apply. So I called the guys who, who photocopy for me, you know, the, the copy center. And I said, uh, let me speak to the manager. I said, you know how much stuff I send you every day? I'm sending you a guy down right now, and you're going to give him a job. Oh, cool. I don't care what job you give him, Very good. but you got to give him a job, and he's got to start like right now. Excellent. Excellent. Right? He got the job. He stayed with that company, that Toronto Legal Copies, for like, I think, 10, 12 Was years. Was it a Moroccan printer? No, dude. No, no. Just just the just a company that I happen to use. They specialize nice. in legal documents. Nice. He worked there forever. He got landed. And uh, that from there, I realized that the government behaves differently. Right when the light is shone on the government, and yeah. you see the yeah. terrible things that they're capable of doing, right? The guy didn't have this document on the date of the hearing. That's true, but they know now. They know that that he is an Amadi. He proved it. Have you used the media since then? All the time, only in only in cases that I think it's going to help because. You know, Avram, uh, the Canada, like many countries, well. Mo- I think Canada is a bit unique. Half of the people in Canada about think immigration is the best thing in the world. Yeah. That's how we built this country on the back of immigrants and we're a country of immigrants and we're you know multicultural, you're a mosaic, the whole thing. The other half say those immigrants are dirtbags. They all they do is collect social assistance, they Bogey. commit crimes, they're all lying their way to the front of the to the front of the line. And uh, we just don't need them. And so the government really makes decisions that are highly politicized. When something terrible happens, right, and happens to be an immigrant, then all of a sudden they clamp down. They don't want to seem sympathetic towards immigrants, right? When the government needs some popularity, for example, they say, okay, we're going to increase it from 250 to 300,000. And so it's a, it's a way that reflects the mood of the country. In your mind, where does the truth lie? 
Who are the immigrants? Who are immigrants? I definitely believe that immigrants are good for Canada. Yeah. I don't believe that every immigrant is good for Canada. I think that immigrants, that we should not do things for the benefit of immigrants. Like we don't bring in people to be nice to them. We bring in people, and the whole purpose of the Immigration Act, right, is to advance Canadian interests. So why do we bring in skilled workers? Because we don't have those people and we need those people to make us more competitive. Why do we allow ourselves to sponsor our spouses? Is it to be nice to the spouse? It has nothing to do with being nice to the foreign spouse. It's because I, as a Canadian, live in this country. I live here. I have a job here. And I happen to marry someone from outside the country and she needs to be here with me. But where does bring us your tired, your huddled masses come in? Well, that's an American concept. Yeah, no, which, no, I'm which, taking that, it from America. That's an American concept. But where does the which, niceness come in in Canada? No. So, uh, so to be honest with you, we don't really have that page. We really don't. The sponsorship of spouses is, is a necessity. You don't have a choice. The economic program is not the poor and the huddled masses, right? So you say, well, what about the refugees? Yeah, sure. We have refugees, and to the extent of 20, 25,000 people a year out of 250 out of 300, yeah, but keep in mind we have a legal obligation because we signed the UN Convention on Refugees. So if we said, nah, we don't want to bring in any refugees, well, you're in violation of your international obligations. And then we have about five, ten thousand 10,000 humanitarian cases that we accept. But again, most of those people are here in Canada already established. They already have a job. They can. They have demonstrated that they can stand up on their own two feet. So it's not a huge risk that we're taking, and we're only dealing with ten or ten thousand out of two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand. Are we a kind country when it comes? I think we're a reasonable country. I think we're a kind country, uh, but I think we can also be very foolish. Uh, I think that we react too quickly and too irrationally to immigration issues. Yeah, and I think today is a is is exactly what we're seeing today. Like for example. Uh, if you follow me, I'm not exactly the most loved immigration lawyer by the immigration bar. Most of the immigration bar hates me. <laughs> I think in every area where you work, you, I, I'm hated. You're, you know, or, or you're <laughs> tremendously loved. You know, in the immigration bar, are you a, okay with that? By the way, oh, it doesn't bother me. You at all. don't mind when people... I'm true to myself. I do what I believe is the right thing to do, regardless of which direction the political winds are blowing. I couldn't care less what people think of my opinion. You don't, hey? Not at all. Couldn't care less. Outright. It doesn't keep you up at night. Not not one bit. Okay. So, for example, I'll give you an example. When Trudeau was running for office for prime minister, he said that he was going to bring in like 25, 50,000 Syrian refugees. Syrians, yeah. I don't mind. It doesn't bother me, right? That doesn't bother me. If you're going to help refugees, I'm all in. You want to make it 100? I'm okay. It makes no difference. 100,000 doesn't bother me. The problem with that, right, was that the people that they were going to pick were already, they were not people in Syria who are dodging bullets and dodging, you know, terrorists and ISIS and and stuff like that. That's not who they were going to pick from. They were going to pick from people who've already been in Jordan and Lebanon for years, who have work permits, who've got jobs, who are living with their relatives, who are already safe. They've already found a place where they could be safe. Now you say, well, it wasn't ideal. Of course it wasn't ideal. However, at the same time, we've got millions of people sitting in UN refugee camps all over the world. Still from the Somalia, the, the war in Somalia, Rwanda, people who've had their legs and arms cut off, yeah. and they've been waiting for somewhere to go for years. So I am a bit critical of that program. I have nothing against Syrians. I have nothing against uh, the, the, the terrible experiences. I just think that we have to pick the people who 
are the most desperate, the people who have been waiting the longest, the people who are living in absolute squalor, and no one is hearing their voice. So is there a lot of kindness then when it works its way down to your office? Do they, do people pay you? Well, I always sure. wonder about that. Do you get paid always? <laughs> That's a good question. Did you have to ask that? So, no, I, I always wonder that, Kitty, because you right. have people coming right. from God-forsaken right. places. Right. They don't necessarily have family here. Right. Therefore, they don't have funds. Right, right. So we, uh, I, I think we take what I call a balanced approach. <laughs> Nicely said. Okay, so the fact that a person is here because they're fleeing persecution doesn't mean that they're poor, that they have to stay poor. They have a work permit. I look at them. They have two eyes. They have two hands, they have two feet, strong back, and there are tons of jobs, tons, everywhere. You can find a job in construction, they get a work permit right away, right? So yeah. they can they can apply anywhere and they can work as many hours as they like, right? So I don't believe that we have to work for nothing just because we're doing good work. Doctors don't always work for nothing and dentists don't work for nothing and social workers don't work for nothing and we don't work for yep. nothing. Yep. So we don't take legal aid. I got out of that many years ago because I just can't make a living uh, doing that. Um, and we ask people to pay us and they pay. Uh, we're also very cognizant of the fact that if somebody can't afford it, we will refer them to either a legal aid lawyer who we are familiar with who will do good work or a legal aid clinic. A lot of my former lawyers are working at uh, um, uh, one of the refugee offices. Uh, if there's a case that we believe is complex and others can't do justice to the case and the person legit doesn't have the money and they don't have family or friends who can help them, we'll just do it pro bono because we're interested in that legal issue because we want that legal issue to be taken to the court and resolved in a particular way and we're worried that somebody else might mess it up. Or the case is just screaming for for help. We just know that we that we can't let somebody else take it. Have you had mothers sitting across the desk from you saying, begging you, please, Mr. Mammon, please help us? Have you had that? Uh, that's uh, actually Avram more common than you would believe. Yeah. We yeah. we we have a very high traffic law office. Like I said, we're we're a pretty big operation for immigration offices. Yeah. And we have a very deep pool of um, immigration lawyers who litigate, who go to court, who do uh, work that is very specialized. So people know. Sometimes, you know, some lawyers joke in the office that sort of all roads lead to MSK, right? Uh, that being a, your company. Yeah, yep. there, there is some truth to that. There is some truth to that. Now, there's other very competent lawyers in the, in the city. But there's not that many of us who can really do the hard work and have the resources. So you could go to a small law firm, a uh, sole practitioner, but if the guy's on another case, right, if the guy's on holidays, the guy's uh, got a flu and he's not working, you're getting deported. <laughs> Can you say no to that woman begging you with her children? Uh, I, 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 I'll tell you, Avram, I, uh, maybe other people will disagree. I have never turned back someone that later I said, geez, you know, I could have done something and I didn't. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I try very hard. At the end of the day, I have to spend a lot of money I've run to retain the talent that I need. Yeah. I can't get bottom of the barrel lawyers. I got to pay top dollar to get the best guys. Right. Right. And we can't spare a few nickels here or there on photocopiers that don't work and telephone systems that are unreliable. We have to get the best equipment possible because we're not fooling around. To get the job done. People's lives are at stake. Yeah. People, yeah. you know, you know what it is for a kid, for example, who came to Canada, immigrated here. 
uh, has been here for four or five years, got in trouble with with drugs, drug dealing, gangs, and then gets sent back to a place like Somalia. What do you think his life expectancy there is, Avram? Think of, about it. Yeah, yeah. As soon as he steps foot on the ground, right? Oh, you're from Canada. They're going to shake him down. Yeah. You know what? You're going to jump in the Jeep with us and you're going to join us right now. Join you doing what? Never mind. Grab a gun and fight with us or we're going to shoot you in the head right now. That's the reality. So I, I just don't, I'm not the kind of guy that is going to do a half-assed job, see the guy get on the plane the next morning and then sleep well. I can't do that. So we, So we. So that's the reality. I, you know, we have to make a buck in order to keep the doors open. Because if I do everything for free, we'll be open another couple of months. We'll be shut down. No more MSK. And there'll be no nobody else to help. The next does time. having so much power, does that make you humble or does that make you arrogant? A power? I don't know if I have power. Well, you, you do. You have power to save people's lives. <sighs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, look... God didn't bless me with a lot of things, but for whatever he, did, he gave me this ability to give to give uh, the immigration department a pretty good run for their money. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's work. Do I mean, you manage to stay humble. I guess that's the question. I, I love what I do, Avram. Yes. It's like you know, telling a kid, you know, uh, you know, you love, you know, you is it such a big deal for you to go to the ice cream store every morning and grab an ice cream? No, it's like I love doing that. Yeah. You know, it's something yeah. I, I like doing. You know, it's not you don't. It's not really work for me. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, people play chess, people play whatever it is, play tennis, play golf. And that's how they get to, you know, um, rack up, you know, a victory somehow. For me, it's a whole different ball game. I just, I, I just, uh, uh, you know, uh, over, the, over my career, how many times um, people, and, and, and especially of the Muslim community, you know, because I've represented every type of Muslim, Shia, Sunni, Ahmadi, Ismaili, every, everybody. And uh, I'll do something for them. And years later, they're still sending me all their Are friends. They? Years and years and years. <clears throat> and they'll tell me something to the effect, you know, Giddy, after God, there's only you. That's what they say. Yeah. And it makes you feel good because what you've done is you've shed... All of the crap that we read about in the paper, all of the politics, all of the controversy, all of the dirt, all of the hate, and it's just two people, one helping yeah, the other, yeah. the other appreciating it, and everything is just dissolved. And in those moments, you think, you know, maybe could there be peace between these types of people or not? But at the very human level, at the very bottom of the equation are two people who are helping each other in this right? world in of this ours. world and I, and I should say Avram um, uh, this reminds me of the time when you you called me or we, you and I spoke you remember how many years ago and you told me this is when you had been working as a professional for the UJA you were a, United Jewish Appeal yeah. that's right United Jewish Appeal and you were a, a, a big shot fundraiser mm. and you were probably making a good buck it was a great respectable job it's a mm. job a lot of Jewish activists would have loved to have had and you called me and I forgot why and how and you said oh yeah so uh, guess what I'm not with the Federation anymore oh, yeah well what are you doing well I uh, you got fired no no I, I left <laughs> why, why, why would you leave a job like that Avram well I'm going to start my own organization what kind of organization well I'm going to 
start an organization about the tikkun olam. I said, repairing the, the world. So what the hell is tikkun olam? <laughs> <laughs> you, and, you and my mom, Giddy. You what and my the, mom. I said, you're going to repair the world? Like what, single-handedly you're going to repair the world? I yeah. said, what, like, like in the Jewish community? No, no, in all the community. Like, it doesn't matter. You don't Anywhere, it doesn't matter. I said, so you're going to go out there, you're going to give up your job, you're going to start an organization, and you're going to save the world. That's that's your plan. That was I, the mission statement. Said, that's right. I was thinking, I think Avram fell and hit his head. I swear to God, buddy, I, I can't I can't lie to you. I thought, man, that's the nuttiest idea I've ever heard. That, that lasts about two weeks. You were, you were the only one who thought that, kid. I'm, I'm not buying shares in that business, that's for sure. Oh, man, I heard a lot of that. Remember that? Remember oh, that? yeah, I love that. And then that. you were setting up an office. I think uh, I think it was Kerry Green from Greenwind. Who, who, it was who, actually Dave Green. Yeah. It was Dave Green who gave you a little space yeah. in his building. And I gave you the first fax machine. Oh, yeah. You remember that, buddy? Yeah, right? yeah. I gave you a fax machine because you needed one. So I, I, I helped you. I figured, look, if you're going to be crazy, <laughs> yeah, I might like as well. I'll give the guy a machine. <laughs> Get, a machine. Get him off my back. <laughs> so I gave you the fax machine. Thank you for the fax machine. Oh, buddy, listen. Thank you. You know, let me tell you something. Every time I see one of these Vahavta trucks yeah. out on the road feeding the hungry, buddy, yeah. I say kudos to you. You're crazy, but you proved me wrong. Thanks, Giddy. God bless you how many people you help. And that feeling that you get for making a connection, right? When you sit down, you give a guy a sandwich, you give him a guy a blanket or whatever it is, there's no politics. There's no controversy. There's no difference. It's just Correct. You're just helping a dude out who needs some help. That's exactly right? right. God gave you the ability to raise a few shekels, a few bucks, to put some gas in a minivan and take out some tuna sandwiches, right? God bless you for what you did. Yeah, man, no, so. you positioned that very well before when you said, listen, Muslim, doesn't matter. I'm sitting at a table and, and it's him and it's me. You know, it's two guys. One guy can help. The other guy's taking the help. And it's just two guys in our world, right? And you're dead on. There's no politics. There's no nonsense like that. You're just doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is helping others, right? All right. So we're buddies, right? You've asked me a bunch of questions. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one. Yeah, go ahead. Did you succeed? I think so. Did you did, did you have the effect that you hoped? Or, or did, did it turn out differently than you expected? Listen, I think that people like you and I ultimately do want to repair the world and we're, we're, we have big personalities. So uh, somewhere inside of our mind, our brain, our soul, there is this belief that we can bring dramatic change to the world. So in terms of that, no, I, I, I did think that I would repair the world more so than I did. But in terms of what the Ahafta has accomplished and perhaps what I was behind, you know, instrumental in doing... I'm pretty proud of myself. You know, Git, I've had two heart attacks. And both times I thought to myself, if I am going to leave this world tomorrow or today, can I honestly say that I've made a mark, that I've done Damn something right, important? Yeah. And my answers both times were yes, yeah. I have made a mark. You left a trail of goodness, brother. I think so. I you think did. so. Can you say that? I'm very proud of the work that I've done. Yeah. In some ways, I've been selfish. Um I think I could have done more. Yeah. Um, I used to do a lot of advocacy with the government, but I got a hot temper, and <laughs> I didn't. And, and you know, I, I go to, I schlep to Ottawa. I speak to their parliamentary committee. You know, they call me to come out to the minister's office to talk about their upcoming bill, and I tell them what to do. It's obvious they don't know what to do. They screw the whole thing up, and they don't listen. 
So I said, to hell with it. If they're not going to listen to me, I'm not going to dedicate more of my time on this. And you stood before the U.S. Congress, right? Yeah, that's right. I did. They, 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 I got a call from somebody that said, this so-and-so was on the phone from the U.S. Congress. I go, oh boy, this is, a, this, this is an interesting one. Whoa. Yeah. So, so the deal was, this goes back to Trudeau being elected, right? He said that um, he was going to, he was going to land 25,000 people by the end of the year if he got elected as prime minister. So you know when the election is. Syrians. Like, yeah, 25,000 Syrians. Yeah. So, you know, the elections are like mid-October, right? So by the end of the year is like not even three months, right? And he's going to land 25,000 right. people. Right. Like, that's impossible. Right. You can't do that. You know why? Because it takes two to three years for us to get through police clearances for these guys. Yeah. Right? And since there was no embassy in Syria, the Canadian embassy left Syria, they couldn't conduct any investigations into the backgrounds of people. Why? Because municipal offices, government offices were all blown up. You can't get verification that this guy says who he is. Yeah. Never mind check if he's got a criminal record or if he's a suspected terrorist or something. So when they called me, they were asking me questions and they said, do you think that this is a good idea? Do you think that they can do it? How are they going to be able to do these background checks in two or three months? So I basically stated the obvious, Avram. And I said, well, only one of two things are possible, right? When they're telling us it takes two or three years to do a background check, right? And now they say they can do it in two or three months. One thing has got to be true, right? Either they've been lying to us for years yeah. by telling us it's going to take two or three years right. when it only really takes two months, right? Right. Or they're not conducting a proper background check in two or three months. Only one of those two things are possible. And logic told me that if you don't have a Canadian embassy or consulate over there, you don't have boots on the ground in Syria, you don't have municipal government government offices that you can check background checks, you can do police checks, then that's going to be a real challenge, even if you had two or three years. So they were interested, in my opinion, as to whether that, that constituted a possible threat to the United States. And they said, do you think that that could pose a threat to the states? I said, well, look, I'm not telling you these people are coming to Canada in order to blow up something in the United States. But once they're here, presumably they've been vetted, maybe they haven't been vetted, to get into the United States from Canada is a piece of cake. You know, the, the border is very, very porous. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, theoretically, if somebody wanted to take advantage of their refugee status in Canada, sneak into the states and cause damage... Uh, yeah, that's uh, it's it's possible. So they invited me to come and testify and talk about the process and all that, and I did. And of course, the immigration bar thought that I'm against Syrian refugees, which is, is ridiculous. I'm answering a question: Is the the question was, is there a possible security threat for the United States? Does this pose a danger? And the answer is possibly, if because I don't know, I don't conduct police uh, uh, background checks. I don't know what the process is. But for 30 years, you're telling me it takes two or three years, and now you're going to get yeah. it done in two or three months? Yeah. You don't think there's something there to look at? What, what was it like in front of the Congress? Did oh, they put you up in it, a hotel? It, it, was actually, it was actually kind of funny. Well, how so? How so? <laughs> uh, because I, I had my uh, laptop with me, yeah. and I had my staff on uh, like a texting thing. So I said, you know, if these guys shoot me any questions that I don't know, you better send me the answer and I'm not going to be able to ask you. So just send me a text message saying uh, whatever it is. And so when I when we were just about to get, you know, uh, to testify, I texted them and I said, oh, my God, I got to go to the bathroom. 
Oh, seriously. I didn't have to go to the bathroom. I just thought I'd play with them so that you could see them all oh, panicking. Oh, 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 oh I no, see, I see. Don't get up. You're going to make me. So I, was, and I, was, I had to keep a straight face, but we had a, we had a great time. How did you do? Did you feel you did well? Yeah. I, 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 I Look, I, I don't do well. I just tell you what I think. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's not what you want to hear. It certainly wasn't what my colleagues wanted me now, to I'm say. I'm not really asking that. Was yeah. it overwhelming for you? Was no, it auspicious? I, was it an honor? No, yeah, sure it was an honor. I get to say that I, I testified, you know, at the subcommittee on Homeland Security. Uh, but, you know, I've testified it in front of, I've testified in front of Parliament. I've, you know, I've testified, uh, you know, I've done things like that. I've done a lot of media and stuff. So that doesn't really bother me. As long as you ask what, me questions. What's it like to go in front of a judge? Do you, do you do, still do that work? Yeah, I, not, not as much as I used to, of course. I used to be in court every single day. And the judges knew you? Everyone. What did they know? Like, how did they look at you? What did they think about well, you? Well, they knew that I was going to be heard. You know, they've got tons and tons of cases. they got to get through them. I don't really care about the other cases. Right, right, right. I care about my uh, guy who's being detained. Right? I'm, I'm Giddy Mammon. <laughs> it's not that I'm Giddy Mammon. I'm just simply saying... That this guy's client is not getting pushed around this morning. So I got a few things to say, and I know you're in a rush, but my client is not going to sit in jail for another 30 days because you think we're going to get this thing done in 10 minutes. Yeah. And so they know that. So some of them, you know, uh, believe that I should just, you know, uh, shut up and not put out my case the way I need to put it out. And others just let me go because it's not going to end well. Um, Were you highly organized? I am meticulous about the facts. Uh, interestingly enough, I don't believe that the law is a big, a huge factor in the kind of work that I do. It, it's the facts. And if you've got, if you can command the facts, if you know your facts, you've asked your client every conceivable question that a judge might want to know you're going to come out a winner in most cases. Very, very few cases turn on a unique interpretation of law. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. uh, most cases that you go, the law has been settled for years and no one is even thinking of questioning it. We know what the law is. For example, in my area of work, which is detention and release, that's when bad guys come into the country, they get arrested. Yeah. My job is to get them out. Yeah. Right. So my clients aren't necessarily attractive people. Right. So you're not feeling all warm and fuzzy about them to begin with, right? So um, you just got to have a good command of the facts and the law is just basically, are they a flight risk? Are they a danger to the public and their identity, you know? And most people are not a danger, you know? So, uh, so, so let me ask you a question. Yeah. Uh, you state very clearly, unabashedly, right. <laughs> That you're a huge lover of Israel and you are a Zionist. Zionism, <laughs> man. The Z word. You know, the word that we don't want to say or hear in, in our day and age. So let me say it, Avram. There is nothing in the world I'm more proud of than my children and the fact that I am an absolute 100% defender of, the, of Israel mm -hmm. and the right of every Jew to reside in our indigenous land. That is land that we are very much connected to. You can say whatever you want about other people having been there. They can stay there as far as I'm concerned. I have no problem. But to someone to dare say to me in my face that that land and the Jews are not intricately connected is to speak of the greatest 
fallacy, revisionist history. In fact, the kippah that I'm wearing right now on my head, uh, Avram, is much more a statement of my Zionism than it is of my orthodoxy, mm-hmm. right? I can be kosher and I can be shomer but I don't need a kippah. I want to wear my kippah so that you and everyone around me knows who I am, right. knows that I'm proud of who I am, that if there's a kid out there with you know a little six or seven-year-old kid with his little tzitzis and his kippah, he knows that there's a big brother near him, right? I want people to know that I'm not hiding anything. I'm, I think it's terrific that Muslims get to walk around in their hijabs and their, their own garb. They're proud of who they are. Why on earth would I not be proud of who I am, right? And that's how I see it. Have you been challenged? I've had some looks. I couldn't care less. I can take care of myself. And even if I couldn't, it wouldn't make any difference, right? This is who I am. You're going to have to get used to it. If you don't like it, too bad. You know, if you walk into my office and you see a lawyer who's Jewish, oh, I don't like it. I don't want to be. That's fine. Go get deported for all I care. You're not doing me a favor. I'm doing you a favor. Right. Right? So you're going to have to deal with that. And you're going to have to deal with the idea that we're not monsters. Jews are not monsters. Zionists are not monsters. That's just the way it is. Does that come out at all in your work? The Jewish stuff? No. To, to be honest with you, Avram, I get more business because I am Jewish. Oh, how so? They, you know, I'm not proud to say, but a lot of guys go up to me. A lot of people say, you're Jewish, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I just wanted to work with a Jewish lawyer. A Jewish lawyer. Yeah. 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 So like, a bit of reverse discrimination. I'll take it. Right. <laughs> right. I'll take right, it. Right. How many people don't come because they know I'm Jewish? They know I'm pro-Zionist. I I have no way of knowing, and yeah. I couldn't care less. Yeah. I make enough. I feed my kids. I send them to school. I've got money to put in the car, and I got money to put food on the table, and I got as big a house as I need. I couldn't care less if half the clients didn't show up. So I'm y- you've made a number of different trips to Israel over the years. Oh, for sure. This is pretty common for people who are in our community. We travel to Israel a lot. For sure. Um, how many times would you say you've been there? In the last. 18 months, maybe nine times. Are you serious yeah. that often? Because your daughter's there. My daughter's there. Well, you know that I was in Israel for the Yom Ha'atzmaut, for the 70th Yom Ha'atzmaut. Which is Israel's birthday. That's right. We, we uh, like, I, like I said, Avram, the creation of Israel, the fact that it's still in existence 70 years later, is a modern day miracle. Yeah. Right? And it's very tough to be Israeli. You're surrounded by very hostile countries. You've got the sea at your back. You've got a very narrow waistline, right? So me and 20 of my buddies, we shipped our motorcycles out. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> put, love this. Put them, on a, put them in containers, put them on a boat. I Five weeks this. later, they showed up in Israel. And we rode around the country with Israeli flags and Canadian flags. And Avram, I'm telling you, you know, seeing like 20 Harleys roaring down the highway. <laughs> I, was a, I swear to God, people would stop us and say, what is this? Who are you? Yeah. What are you? What, yeah. We said, well, we're from Canada. They go, you're from Canada. What are you doing here? I said, we're here for Yamat Smut. They go, Yamat Smut? Are you kidding? They said, like, how, 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 how Zionistic, how much love can you have for the country? So everywhere we went, we were treated like gold. Like, if you ever want to feel like uh, one of the, you know, like, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or a celebrity like a or rock star. A rock star, man. Just take a whole bunch of Harleys and ride down <laughs> <laughs> in Israel. Giddy, what kind of Harley do you ride? Uh, 
a uh, uh, electric glide mm-hmm. uh, police edition. So I it's love- a it's a big big Harley. What year is it? 2010. Yeah, yeah. How uh, big how big are those bikes? Do you know? Uh, CCs? Yeah, CCs. I don't know. I think it's like uh, 1600 or something like that. A nice that. size bike. It's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's well, a lot of What do of you have on it? What are the extras on it? I'm a big bike guy. You know that. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I got, uh, I, I, I put some, like, I'm not a big mechanical guy, right? Yeah. But I got a lot of tricks on it. You know, the, the, the motorcycle GPS, the, the uh, fancy mirrors. I got uh, new pipes on it. I got a new computer, like a high performance computer. Oh, do you really? Uh, Is dude, Monica the, into this at all, your wife? Monica tolerates it very she told, well. Does she ever go on the bike? <laughs> well, she came with me to Israel. And she what? went up and down the country with you. Well, on some of the country, like I mean, it's it's there's some rough areas, right? And so she, we had a chase vehicle, so she spent a lot of time in the chase vehicle. But listen, my wife is as far from the biker life. <laughs> right? Monica really is. Right, like she's into fashion. She's into the fashion, brother. She's yeah. got a, she's got a little boutique and she's got her little thing going on. Yeah. But it has it there's no intersection between she's her sweet. life. She's sweet. She's quiet. Yeah, she's quiet. She's man. lovely. She's a doll. And what what's what what's amazing about yeah. her buddy is this. What's amazing is how much she puts up with to be married to me, right? Because I'm crazy, right? Like, oh my God, you got to get to the shul. You got to help put the, you know, the dafina, like the chulant in the oven because they can't do it. And then I need you to go here and go there. And then I'm going on a motorcycle trip. You have to come with me. And, uh, you know, she puts up with so much. Um, 30 years of marriage. 30 years, brother. I'm telling you, I I, I don't know how I won that lottery, man. Do you feel, you you feel like it's a blessing? A blessing? Are you kidding? It's like, it's, it's like, like the Powerball of lotteries, you know, like I, I have so many friends who, you know, maybe didn't make the right decision, didn't make the right connection. Maybe they did make the right connection. They just didn't know what a relationship involves. You know, you think, oh, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have this amazing woman next to me and I'm going to live exactly the same life that I had right. like right. Uh, before I met her. Right. As if she's like a neutral factor in this equation. So I tell my friends, I say, when you get married, buddy. Fifty percent of the decisions you're going to toss in the garbage. Someone else is going to pick those up. Yeah. So you want to see that movie today? Too bad you're not. You're going to go see this rom com because that's what your wife wants to see. Right. And you don't want to go to those people's houses because they're a pain in the neck, right? Well, those are your wife's best friends, and you're going to have to go, and you're going to just have to smile. And that's what it's going to take. Because why, why did you choose Monica as your wife? What was it about her? I don't know. The, the second I saw her, like, I'm not I'm not going to spiel you this stuff about uh, love at first sight. I just saw her and I said, uh-oh. Like, okay, you know, this is kind of interesting because I was in no, no position to get married. How old were you? At that time, I was uh, just turned 20, 26. And you had opened up your law firm already? I just, not only had I opened up So you were busy. Law, I had nothing, man. The only <laughs> asset that I had was student loans, and yeah. I still owed my grandma six thousand dollars. Right, yeah. so that's enough. that's all Monica was going to get out of this thing. Yeah. And then I don't know. We, we it was about a year. Uh, we'd gone out. You were and, matched up. Someone put you together. Not really. It was. Uh, uh, my very first immigration client who was an Israeli said, oh, I took out this girl, man. I'm, really? Yeah. She's not for me. She's kosher and she's, you know, she's, uh, you know, she, she's rich. She has an Alfa Romeo. And I said, dude, I'm not looking for that kind of woman right now. <laughs> so forget <laughs> Maybe that. Maybe a Harley woman. Right? Yeah. A Harley woman. <laughs> yeah, that might be, right? About three or four months later, another guy that I went to law school with 
says to me, oh, you know, I'm dating this new girl and she's got this friend, right? And she's kosher. And I think you'd really <laughs> dig her, right? So I, I, I didn't make the connection and I said no to him as well. But it was bothering me that, I said, like, what's the story? Why does everybody that I'm going to date has to be kosher or something? And then I kind of put two and two together. And I called back the first guy. I said, the girl that you wanted me to meet, who who was that? What who was her that? name? Yeah. So he said, oh, I think her name was Monica or Miriam or something like that. And, and I said, what did she do? Well, she had some store or something in uh, Clark. And then I called the second guy back. I said, what's the name of that girl that you told me? <laughs> and it turned out to be the same girl. Can you imagine the chance of that? That's two what we, guys, we call that Bashert. Yeah, for sure. Two guys who have never known each other, never talked to each other. Yeah, yeah. The first guy never once asked me to see some other girl yeah. before or after that time. And the second guy was a close buddy of mine, never asked me. Do you, do you see that as God, Giddy? 100%. You do, okay. okay. Even the moment that I asked her, I swear to God, uh, Rum, it wasn't even me. It was like God, like with his hand up the puppet and mouthing the words, because I had zero. I didn't have... I didn't have a ring for her, and I didn't have money for a oh, ring really? for her. Oh, I promise you. Yeah. I promise you. And all of a sudden, out of my mouth, I said, well, you know, we had a great time. It's been like about a year. We've been going, yeah, yeah. And she's so, so what was it about Monica? She's just a very sweet person. I don't think she can hurt a fly. She's very sensitive. Um, she, like the very first date that we had, like we didn't go to like uh, I don't know, south of France. We just went to a nice place. And, you know, we sat down, we started talking. I look at my watch, like three hours had gone by and like I wasn't, like we weren't halfway finished our conversation. They were even setting up for dinner. Yeah. You know, and it was, it was just, it was like putting on an old pair of shoes or old pair of sneakers. They just fit perfect. That's nice. You know what I'm saying? They, no rough edges. They just fit perfect. And that's how... That you know, uh, like like I said, if you could win that lottery of life, you know, take that, screw the cash, you know. Well, what about the cultural differences? Yeah, a lot of that. that Did that, you have to work stuff through? Hundred percent. Are you kidding? Mm. You know the way I raised my kids versus the way that she was raised. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing alike. As an example. Well, they were well off. We weren't. Yeah. She had an Alfa Romeo. I had like a $900 Datsun B210. I was able to put a buck 50 of gas at a time. Right? Right. I remember those days remember, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And like, I mean, it was a whole different thing. I was paying my own tuition. I was working in the copy shop at the university. Is, is that because you wanted to or you had to? I had to. Like your dad just didn't have cash to give you? No, my dad was okay. I mean, he wasn't, he, like we weren't like on skid row or anything. Yeah. But my dad, you know, w- was worked hard and there was five of us yeah. and there's no reason for him to work any harder than uh, he had to. Right. So- Dad, you take care of the food, you take care of the mortgage, you take care of the bills, and I could take care of myself. Yeah. That was a mentality. Yeah. We don't. I, I don't know that our kids have that mentality today. I don't mean my kids, but kids in general, this generation. You may not have allowed them to, by the way. You probably gave a lot to your kids, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that I could have been more like my dad. Yeah. Right? I could have been. Like, did they have jobs, your, your daughters? Did they work? They do now. They I do mean, now. Like, look, Avram, it's a different world. It is. You, you know, when I started to work, I started to work when I was 12 years old. Yeah, me too. I was washing dishes. Yeah, me too. Right? Where did you wash dishes? Uh, Pumpernicks <laughs> on Bathurst and Wilson. How you did remember? you get that job at 12? I'll, you want to know? The, I'll tell you. It's a funny story. Yeah. Right across the street was uh, the TD Bank. 
So I went to the TD Bank and I asked them, how much money do I have in my account? I said, they said like $20 or something. <laughs> right? So I said, gee, I, I think I need to find a job. So I crossed the street, yeah. right? And there was Pumpernick's. So I opened the door. Imagine I'm 12 years old, right? I walk into this place and the waitress, the, not the waitress, the, uh, I don't know, the, the Major D, the, the, the major owner. D, whatever. She goes to me, yeah, what can I do for you? I said, uh, I'm, I want to speak to the manager. She goes about what? I said I'm, I wanna I wanna apply for a job. So she starts giggling, right? Yeah. So she goes to the back and she comes out with some, you know, some guy, some older guy, and he goes, "What do you want? What do you want?" I said I I'm I'm looking for a job. He goes, "What kind of job?" I said, "I don't know, any kind of job." He goes, "Do you have any experience washing dishes?" So now I got this moral dilemma, right? I, as a Moroccan male, never, never. washed a dish in my whole goddamn life. And neither I don't did, even think I picked up a dish in my I. whole life. Neither okay? did I, by the way, uh, as an Ashkenazi uh, I'm kid. not proud. I'm not saying, hey, no. look at me. Do you I'm clean just... up now, by the way? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so. And do you clean the house now? Uh, not so much listen, okay I'm, I'm, I'm saving people from deportation okay <laughs> <laughs> my pajamas on the floor is somebody else's problem all right fair enough so anyways so this guy mr stackle god bless him came out and says oh what kind of, you know he says uh do you have any experience washing dishes so now i got this moral dilemma the truth was i had never washed a dish in my life so i said well uh yeah he says what kind of experience do you have i said well after the Shabbat meal, I sometimes <laughs> <laughs> the guy busted a gut laughing. He laughed his ass off. And you got the job. He says, "Come in at Sunday at three o'clock." Yeah. I worked in that place How for like five years. How much did they pay? Two sixty-five an hour. An hour, right? Two sixty-five an hour, buddy. Within three years, I had like seven hundred bucks saved in the bank. Yeah. I didn't know what to do with that money. And then I saw a neighbor of my friend who has like this little crappy little mini bike, yes, a 50cc mini bike. Remember those little jalopies? Yeah. I said, that's what I want. So <laughs> I went out and I bought a motorcycle. Right. Never sat on a motorcycle in my life. Right. And I bought it and I've never gotten rid of the bike. And you got arrested because of it. I got arrested because I was driving. What's the a... story there? So literally, I never sat on a bike. So when I got the bike home, I didn't know how to ride it. And I went to a field and I had to figure out where was the brake and what, what this thing was. It was a clutch. I had no idea what that was. And I learned how to ride the bike. So within a couple of months, I was scooting around all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Can I break in for sure. one sec? Because I, I love all your stories. There, there was a day when I realized that you have a lot your balls are much bigger than mine. <laughs> you know when that day was? I walk in on a Bathurst Street, and if you're not from Toronto, it's kind of the central street of our community, the Jewish right. community, right? The and spine. There, and the there, spine. The spine. And there I see this guy driving on his bike, his motorcycle, and perched right behind him on the seat behind him is this little girl. Yeah. And that was you with one of your daughters. Yeah, they were on the back of my bike when they were like four or five years right. old. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, who does such craziness? Yeah. Sure enough, I look again, I see Skitty Mammoth. Well, my, my, my kids, you <laughs> know. little girl's holding on for dear life, you know. <laughs> well, that's how you're going to survive. <laughs> that's <laughs> how you're going to survive. You want to live in this world, you got to hold on tight. That's right. And I'll, I'll tell you, I think that the, the strategy worked out. Kanina Hora, my kids, yeah. God bless them, they can stand on their own two feet. If oh. God forbid something happens to me one day... And they're left in this world on their own. No one's going to push them around. And if they have their grandchildren on the back of their bike, you're okay with I'm that? I'm okay with it, brother. Okay, so you almost got arrested on the mini bike, right? So, well, it wasn't a mini bike, dude. It was a real... What kind of bike was it? Suzuki TS-125. Okay. It was a, an enduro. 
And so anyway, so I, I've got the helmet. And what what it, what happened when I bought the, the bike, right, I had no way of plating it. I couldn't get a license yeah, plate. Right, right. And the place was going bankrupt, right? I bought it at an auction because I was familiar with auctions because my dad was a jobber. So they had to clean out the place within 30 days anyways. So when I went to the back, there was like a motorcycle graveyard of bikes that had been in accidents and stuff. So there was one that was demolished. I figured the trustees got to get rid of the all the garbage anyway so I took a quarter out of my pocket I unscrewed the plate off of a wrecked bike is that what you did and I put it on the bike yeah so anyway so one day on a beautiful sunny day I pull up to Max Milk to buy an ice cream I take my helmet off not knowing the car beside me is an unmarked police car it's a cop car so he says uh, hello I turn around and say oh man Shit. oh man <laughs> look like I got myself into he says can I see your uh, driver's license insurance and ownership and I'm like frozen I, he says do you have a driver's license and, uh, not really can I see the ownership uh, I don't really have one of those and obviously no insurance so they towed my bike Yeah. they charged me with theft of Her Majesty's property. Oh, that's oh, a nice one. Oh, there goes law school. <laughs> right. Well, that got me into law school, believe it or not. Did it? Yeah. So, anyways, so they charged me with that. They charged me with no insurance, no no uh, ownership, all that. Then they charged my parents with aiding and abetting to the delinquency of a minor. Ooh. Oh, don't even ask. My parents went crazy. So what happened at this point? I was 15 years old, right? And so I go to court. My uncle had a buddy of his who was in law school. Was What's second, your uncle's name? My Uncle Gabby. Yeah. I was very tight with him. He's still with still, us? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So anyway, so my Uncle Gabby brings over his friend who's in law school at Osgood. He's a second-year law student. So, of course, my mother turns on all the lights in the house and, you know, cleans up the house for two days. And, makes food. Yeah, right? makes the food, brings up the tea and the coffee and the drinks and everything. And he basically tells me what to do when we go to court. So I went to court, and the judge is wailing on my mother. He could have been killed. What kind of a mother are you? Can you imagine telling a, a Moroccan mother what kind of mother are you? <laughs> yeah, right, right. He could have been killed. He didn't have an insurance. He didn't take lessons. He doesn't know anything. Isn't he stupid? And she's crying, <laughs> and he doesn't listen Boy. to me. I have tears in my eyes he now. He doesn't listen to me. She's wailing in the court. <laughs> <laughs> a great story, Anyways, man. the story goes, he gives me a slap on the hand, right? He gives me, you know, I got to take some courses and I got to do this and send him a letter when it's all done and stuff. And I, I was a lousy student. I wasn't really good at anything in, the, in, in school. And I said, man, that was cool. I like that. <laughs> you know? So then I went, to, I went to grade 11 and there was a law course. I said, I'm going to take law. So I took law and lo and behold... For whatever reason, I got like 70 or 75, which for me was like... Was a good market. Was amazing. And I said, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. That's cool. Yeah. Because of that bike, eh? 100%. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I, I, I completely changed overnight. Like completely. As soon as I got those first couple of grades in that law course in grade 11, I knew that there was only one huh. path for me. Huh. And that was law. And there was no plan B. It was plan A. If I didn't get into law school... I don't know. I was going to, I don't know what I was going to do. There was no plan B on that one. So I want to take this uh, on a different road for a moment. Something that uh, we talked about before. I know that happened in your life and was a very difficult thing. Uh, it's something that really scares me too, is that you lost one of your sisters yeah. about well, how, what, seven, eight years ago? Michelle, yeah. Michelle. My sister, Michelle. And she was around 53 when yeah. she passed. Yeah, yeah. What was that like to lose a sister? Um. 
You know, it's like just sitting there like in your chair, maybe eating macaroni and cheese or something, and somebody coming with a baseball bat, yeah. just smashing you in the back of the head. Yeah. So what the hell? What are you talking about? I'll never forget it. I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'll just, uh, you know, it's funny because uh, I'm one of five kids, three sisters and two brothers. Right? Five now? Uh, well, now four, right? Do you still say, though, we are five? Sure. Because I, I find that a lot when someone loses... Listen, uh, Michelle, so they still say, yeah, Michelle yeah. is very much alive in my head. Yeah. Right. So there's five of us. And believe it or not, Avram, if you were to meet all of us, right, four of us are like these super hard, hard ass sort of don't push me around kind of people. Tough. Tough. We're not, no, no pushovers there. My sister, Michelle, yeah. was the sweetest, kindest, angelic spiritual person you've ever met yeah. a wonderful soul she's the one that brought peace to everything that she touched she was a wonderful wonderful person and one day you know she had some acid reflux and she didn't know what was going on she goes to the doctor the doctor says we have to do some sort of a scope and she had forced forth um for you know stage four cancer and uh, we try to save her you know with the surgery chemo but it was just all a waste of time how did your parents deal with it well my dad wasn't around my mom of course uh, i mean it was you know Avram, you go through life you say oh you know well i'm, I'm gonna go to school then after i'm gonna go to law school then i'm gonna go do this and i'm gonna get married i'm gonna have kids I'm gonna do this. And you have this whole plan right as if that is just the the itinerary is like a book, you know, with these chapters, and that's it. And then I'm going to hit 70-something, I'm going to die. But none of that is really true. You know, today is all you got. Like, you know, tomorrow is not promised. Yesterday is gone. All you got is today, right? And so I didn't learn that until my sister passed away. Because just like my sister, she planned on walking her two daughters down the aisle, and she planned on one day you know buying a dress for Johnny's bar mitzvah and it was just taken away it was just gone so the only way that I remain sane after that really is like first of all like why the hell her like maybe you have to take one of us <laughs> why on earth would you take her yeah so you got to get used to that idea right you got to get used to that idea like at that point like I know it's going to sound really stupid and maybe to your audience it's going to be stupid after my sister died, I went out and I bought a Harley. And you're going to say, well, what, what, what does that mean? Uh, all my life, you know, I've, I've done so much. I think I've given so much to my practice. I've given so much, I think, to my wife and to my kids. And I don't really spend a lot of stuff on my, I don't spend a lot of money on myself. And I don't spend, like, I, I drive a crappy car because I don't care about cars. I don't care about, I care about a motorcycle. That's so why I had a Yamaha at the time. Nice bike, but it wasn't a Harley. When she passed away, I said, you know what? you got to do something for yourself. You're not going to live forever. Nothing is guaranteed here in life. That hardly represented to me yeah. that you got to enjoy something mm. because, sure, one day, you know, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do this. Forget that, man. So now I live a very different life. My, my life bef after my sister has nothing to do with the life I had before it. I now think of every, every day, every week as uh, something that I have to measure very quick, very carefully. Yesterday, I took an entire day off 
to spend time with Becky and getting all of her things. And if you, you if, were saying, if you were to ask me to do that before my sister passed away, I said, you crazy? I got to see this client. I got to yeah. do this. I got to do that. I was I gotta... wondering about that. Yeah. And now it's very different. Now I, I view life and the world. And oh, I, I know what I want to say. The only way I was able to stay sane after that is to believe, like, although I don't understand it, I'm not mad at God, right? I just have to believe that he's got this game plan that I don't get, right? It's like a, you're watching a chess master. He's moving this here, here. They, you have no idea what is in his head, right? But you got to believe he knows what he's doing. If he called yeah. my sister, right, who never said a bad word about anybody, who was just a sweet as anything and he took her away like <laughs> wow you know there has to be some reason to this or the whole world's a big fat toilet yeah and i can't allow myself to think that are way. you a happy fellow i think so i think so. you feel a lot of joy more than i think my fair share buddy i think more yeah. than my fair share i um I live life a little differently, I think. You know, I'm true to myself. I don't really care what people think about me. I try to do what I believe is right. Uh, sometimes it's popular. Sometimes it's not popular. Today, it's not a good time for people like me. I have my own political views. I have my own view of the world. Some people think I'm anti-immigrant. A lot of my colleagues think I'm anti-immigrant, which is is so crazy, Right. I am an immigrant. I'm the son of an immigrant. Yeah. My entire life, I've been surrounding myself with immigrants. I've been help. I've been doing nothing but help people come to this country. But because of who I vote for politically, because of things that I say, I criticize our immigration system because, in many ways, it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. We could do a lot better uh, with the resources that we have. Do you have a bucket list? Yeah, I do. Is there stuff you want to accomplish? Yeah. Can you tell me one? Well, the uh, I I um, I told you my 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 new life started when my sister passed away, and I want to do a trip with each of my daughters. I've already started with that. I took my daughter Shushi to Costa Rica. She wanted she loves monkeys. She's always loved monkeys. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this weird post I put up on Facebook once. My my daughter, since she was a kid, she loved monkeys. So I said, you know. You're all adults now. I want one memorable experience, just you and I. Nice. So she says she wants to go to a country where there's lots of monkeys. So I posted on Facebook. <laughs> I said, Does anybody know any countries <laughs> that has lots of monkeys? Lots of monkeys. Yeah. So they, a few people answered, and the most was Costa Rica. So I turned to to, to Shoshi. I said, "How about Costa Rica?" She says, "Are there a lot of monkeys?" I said, "Yeah, let's go there." All right, we're going. So we went to Costa Rica. We spent a week there. It was. Amazing. I love that kid so much. You know, all my children. And so we went looking for monkeys. We went skydiving. Did you? That was my second time, yeah. I, I did that. She uh, jumped out of the plane too? She jumped out. Uh, that was when I was 18. When I was 18, I, I went skydiving, but I went uh, I went solo, right? So uh, today they don't do that anymore. You're attached to, to a, an instructor. Time, right now you got to go tandem. But when I, when I jumped when I was 18... Uh, I did that solo. How was it when you jumped out of a plane? Busted my toe. Did you? Yeah. Landing. I still, I still can't bend it. No, but how was it when you were in the air? What was that like? Well, that was nuts, yeah. that, that That's a different experience because you've never jumped out of a plane in your life, right? And we're talking about 
technology in like uh, let's say late 70s right the plane didn't look like it would get <laughs> off the ground right this whole thing like was green crazy. acres remember green acres <laughs> like we go there at nine o'clock in the morning for a course in skydiving and by like three o'clock i'm strapped into a, a cessna 172 that could barely get off the ground they're going up and they say okay go what are you crazy <laughs> <laughs> but you follow them anyways you do yeah, it right yeah, yeah so you do it because you know you're 18 you're stupid right, <laughs> right, so right, I, right. you know i went I, at that time i was dating this jewish girl right this yeah. ashkenazi girl and she also got hurt a little bit right because what happened we went to a movie right and so at that time they did these little shorts at the beginning of the movie so there was right. a two-minute thing on skydiving so i turned her as a man that's great i really <laughs> want to do that she's yeah i'd love to do that so we opened up the yellow pages the next day found the toronto school of skydiving is that buttonville airport no arthur ontario okay arthur <laughs> so i called them up and i said how old do you have to be to jump and they said 18 and i was i just turned 18 and so did my girlfriend and uh, we dropped 125 bucks a piece. We went up on Sunday. By the afternoon, we jumped out of the airplane. When I took her home that afternoon, and she told her mom that I take her to Scotland. <laughs> that was the end of that relationship. Holy eh? moly! That woman blasted me like she was going to kill me. Oh my god, she <laughs> was going to kill me. She loved me, but on that day. It's her daughter, she man. She was going to, yeah. No, but kid, you jump out of the plane, and then you realize you are in the air. What's that like? To be honest with you, I mean, like, yeah, like getting out of the plane is like deciding to, you know, to, to jump, to climb out of the plane is a bit nerve wracking. Then you stand on this little, little platform, like a ledge, and, yeah, and you hold on to the to the, the the bar that holds up the wing, and then he says, "Okay, let go," and then you let go, and all of a sudden, like you fly backwards, and you you know you're going down to the ground. So it's quite the experience, but I I don't think that I was afraid in the air. I, I if I had a fear, it was it was you know stepping out of the plane because yeah. now you know you're, you're you're out there, you're not getting back. <laughs> yeah, in. there's nowhere you're, to climb back. Yeah, your girlfriend's not going to be too pleased with you if you're looking like an idiot, right? You can't yeah. get out of the plane. Good point. Good and point. also, listen, I invested 125 bucks in this thing, right? I'm going to get my money. Right. I'm going to get my money out of this thing. That's for sure. So good. Listen, we're uh, we're about ready to wrap up here. What I'd like to do at the end of the show is just to uh, look back on it and say what's best to take out of this show because I want Hat Radio to be as inspirational to people as possible. So the the original question, which I asked was, why Giddy Mammon? Why, why do we bring you on our 42nd episode? And the answer is, I've always found you to be a very colorful person. There's aspects of you which I wish for myself. Oh, come on. You're a very courageous man. Come on. Either that or incredibly stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with the second one. <laughs> you, I've always and, and the story I told you about your daughter in the back of your bike. I, I, I would never have the gumption. I would never have the wherewithal to do that with my son. I do well, not have the all, guts to do it. Avram, never underestimate the capability of your kids. Yeah. That is probably yes, as parents, yes. That is the biggest weakness. You know, I'll, I'll tell you just uh, just a quick story. When when the kids were little, I mean little, right? They were like eight years old or something, seven years old. Um, I had a cord of wood delivered to my house. Yeah. You know, a truck comes, a big pickup truck dumps this pile of wood. Wood. Because we, we like using the fireplace. So the kids come out, go, oh, Daddy, what's that? What's that? I said, that's wood. They go, what are you doing? I said, we're going to burn in the fireplace. They go, oh, who's going to clean it up? I said, you guys are going to clean it up. They go, what? Yeah. And they looked at this, like the pile was like higher than they were. Yeah. And they said, what do you mean, Daddy? I said, yeah, you're going to take all this wood 
You're going to take it to the backyard, and you're going to stack it up neatly. And my wife said, are you crazy? Mm-hmm. They can't do that. I said, don't say a word. Just leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And they said, but, Daddy, it's impossible. It's too big. It's bigger than us. I said, no, it's not. Just take one at a time. Go to the back of the house, put it neatly on the, on the patio, and come back and get another one. Within about an hour, an hour and a half, they had done the entire cord of wood, yeah. right? Yeah. And they looked, and I think on that day, they learned their own capability. Right. Something that looked absolutely impossible. I mean, <laughs> because <laughs> that's crazy, right? So yeah. they, 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 they had a tremendous... They, they looked at themselves and their accomplishment with awe. They couldn't believe that that mountain of wood, which was impossible, dirty, filthy, full of bugs and stuff, they were able to carry that by doing one piece at a time. And that's why I tell them life is, like, life is like. Just don't look at it as a mountain, right? Take a look at it one brick at a time, one piece of wood at a time. And I think it served them very well. So I don't shy away from doing that stuff. So that's them. one reason I wanted to bring you on the show because yeah. I've always found you to be a very brave fellow. Um, and you take risks, and you, not only that, you, uh, I've always known you to enjoy life tremendously. And, and you go out of your way to make sure that it's powerful, like you are a force to reckon with. I love the story about you taking your daughter to Costa Rica. I can only imagine you there. It's a hot country. The bugs are this big, right? They're enormous, right? We went, we went looking for tarantulas in the forest. Did you was find a, them? Oh, for sure, all over the place. Because <laughs> we had a guide. They showed us, and we're, it, it, was, it was just fabulous. So that's, that's giddy mammoth to me. You go to Costa Rica, and you go looking for tarantulas. That's who you are to me. It was amazing. I, I know this crazy story is is you went to Israel, you took your dog with you one year, right? Oh, yeah. And it was killed in Israel, right? Not in Israel. Where, it was attacked in Israel and almost killed. Where was? Where did it die? Uh, it got here. You got it back? It, we brought it back, and a couple years later, it was mauled in a park by another dog and died that way. Well, that, that dog had bad muzzle, didn't it? That dog was an amazing dog. Uh, no, but the, the thing about that story was that you took your dog yeah. to Israel. Why did you take your dog to Israel? Who does that? <laughs> <laughs> no kidding, seriously. You who know, do, who you know, does that? You know what's funny? When I called the travel agent, I forgot which uh, one of these Jewish travel agents. Like TikTok. Yeah, one of those guys. They, oh, whatever. So I called him up and I said, uh, I want to book a couple tickets to Israel. She goes, okay. Uh, and she, she, I said, but I want to stop over in, uh, in Europe. She goes, okay, where do you want to go? It doesn't really matter. She goes, what particular country in Europe do you want to go? I said, just somewhere halfway between here and Israel. She goes, like where? I said, I don't know. Is Switzerland halfway? She goes, yeah, why? I said, I'll stop in Switzerland. She goes, how long do you want to visit Switzerland? I said, just a couple of hours. So she goes, I swear to God. She goes, why Why is that? What are you going to do in Switzerland for a couple of hours? I said, well, the truth is I'm going to take my dog. And my dog can't hold a pish for 12 hours. So I got to stop somewhere love that. in Europe. I love that. And I'll take her out for a pish. But why did you take your dog to Israel? Because I like my dog. So I... <laughs> Okay, fair enough. My, my mother-in-law had an apartment, right? So I wasn't where, staying in a hotel. Where was your apartment? On Schenken in Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv. Right. So you took the dog. We took the dog and uh, Erev Shavuot, we were walking around, and some crazy pit bull attacked the dog. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. If, if you want to look at my hand, so the pit bull attacked, I don't know if you've ever had your hand in a pit bull's mouth. I never have, no. Was well, The pit bull had my dog, because it was a little um, Maltese, like seven pounds, right? Like this is like a little chicken. Right, and grabbed the dog 
and was going to start shaking the dog yeah. back and forth and to, kill kill it. It. And to kill it. So yeah. I grabbed the pit bull by the head in a headlock, and the pit bull would not let go of the dog. Yeah. So I had to reach into her mouth and pry apart. So you can still see scars here on my hands, on my thumbs. Did you get stitches? I didn't get stitches. Uh, Did you open the mouth? Were you open? No, it? hell no. No, you can't open that mouth. There ain't anyone alive that's going to open up that job. So what happened? Eventually, people were hitting the dog. I had the dog by the throat. I had it in one arm like this and another one on its throat, so hoping that it would need to breathe. People were throwing water on it, hitting it, kicking it. And then finally, I was able to pull the dog out of its mouth. Uh, it got like Oy. shredded. It was horrible, a horrible experience. And I couldn't move my hand for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, my, my hand couldn't, like, like right now I'm holding like a, like a like cupped, right? Uh, like I, 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 I thought I was going to lose the use of my thumb. Really? You have, Avram, I'm telling you, man, you've never in your life seen something powerful like the bite of a pit bull. That thing locks down, it's over. There's, there's, the thing has no sense of any kind. Yeah, yeah. Zero. Yeah, they go crazy, it is, right? It's like a vice. You can't talk to a vice, right? It's just clamped on a piece of steel. It's not moving. That's a pit bull's what job. What happened to the dog, your little dog? Dog, uh, somebody, somebody told us about an emergency um, veterinarian hospital in uh, Netanya, Herzliya. So we grabbed a cab on Erev Shavuot, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we paid like 300 bucks or something or two or 300 bucks and the dog was bleeding all over the place uh. and uh, and uh, he's, the dog was saved right and the vet said you know had you let that pit bull shake that dog it'd be yeah. dead in one second right and I never let go of the, I never let go of the stupid thing and my <laughs> wife had to stay in Israel for about four or five weeks because the dog wasn't fit to travel so I went back, took care of the law practice, and she stayed behind and then brought the, the dog back. And when they, when, she, when they saw this dog that looked like it had been through like a shredder, you know, because half its body was shaved and, you know, st- stitches everywhere. So, so what happened later on when you brought her back? Well, well I was in the park here on off of Faywood, you know, near my right house. Right near you, where you live. Near, near where I live. And I, I took the dog off the leash to run around the park. And this little Maltese, like all seven pounds, went running after this other big, big, like a Mastiff or something like yeah. that. That dog wasn't having any of it. Clamped down on her sugar. And uh, the dog was, died. Yeah, the dog died. It was a very, like that in, was my, in the park? so first of all, you know, right? You know that Moroccans are not into the dog thing, right? My the, wife, yeah, that was my, my wife was begging, she always had dogs and she begged me. I said, no, 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 no. And I couldn't say no anymore. You know, I just, you know. It comes to that point. It yeah. comes to that point. You, you know, you, you love a person and they're connected to something yeah. as crazy and foreign as you it is. You want them to have it. You want them to have it. So I said, okay, because I'm a dealer, right? I'm a, I'm a wheeler dealer. You are. I am, right? You are a wheeler so, dealer. Yeah, so, right? So I go to her. I said, okay, okay, fine. You want to ruin my life? Okay, fine. Yeah. Go ahead. Ruin my life. You know, here's a guy who's never had a pet other than a goldfish his whole life, okay? <laughs> All right. You're going to ruin my life? Okay, Here, here's the deal. What's the deal? And she'd make any deal, right? She'd make any deal because she's had dogs forever. So she says, what's the deal? I said, I get to pick the dog. She goes, fantastic. Okay, I can live with that. You pick the dog. Right. So I go to the, the PJs that was at Yorkdale at the time. Sure, I remember PJs. I go downstairs. I say, excuse me. He goes, yeah. I said, what's the smallest dog you have? Yeah. I said, I need a dog that doesn't shed, that's tiny, that doesn't smell, and doesn't make a sound. He goes... Uh, how about this one? He shows me like a Westie, you know, Westland High. I said, how, how much does that weigh? He goes about 20 pounds, 25 pounds. I said, do you have anything smaller? He says, uh, I don't know. 
So they had a book rack over there, and I see this little fluffy white thing. I said, what's that? He goes, that's a Maltese. I said, how much is that weigh? He says, like seven, eight pounds. Yeah. I said, I want one I'll of those. Ta- I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> I said, does it shed? He goes, no, it doesn't shed. I said, I'll take that one. <laughs> that's how I ended up with the Maltese. So, so it died in that park that day? Yeah, it broke my heart, brother. But it must have. Oh, man. It must have. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I, you know what? I'll tell you something, Avram. You know what? It's a bit of a secret. That park on Faywood, yeah. which is the park where I used to take the kids all the time. I, I know the park. Yeah, right? I know which one it is. Faywood Park, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, people walk there on Shabbat all the time, yeah. right? Since that day, over twenty-five years ago, I haven't stepped foot in that park. Is that right? And I haven't driven down the street that's adjacent to it. Uh, that's you're behind, kidding! I'm serious. Yeah, I have not, like twenty-five years, done that. Isn't that something? Because I, I sw- if if I have a PTSD or something, it's about that incident. I like I saw imagine. that dog being shredded to pieces like oh, yeah. that. I just uh, did you ever get another dog? Yeah, we had quite a few. We rescued a couple of dogs. Um, you have a dog now? No, I I am now Avram in another phase of my life. Yeah. Like after my sister passed away, I said that's it. No more dogs. I'm going to be taking care of myself, taking care of my kids, and uh, concentrating on those things. I've, okay. I've had my fun. I had three, four dogs now, and uh, I'm I'm done with that. Yeah, you kid, you're a fascinating human being. Oh, oh man, you are colorful. There, there's not, yeah, speak, I don't know. Coming I, from the mouth of a guy who went to save the world. Oh right? yeah, I know. I save bits and pieces of. I just find you a fascinating listen, guy. Listen, I Avram, love this interview. Listen, Avram. Neither of us is going to change the entire world. No, it's but you know what? What the Rambam said, right? My My What did he say? <laughs> you know, he said, what did he say? saving one life, right? It's like, yeah. it's like saving the whole yeah. world. Yeah. Do you know why that is, by the way? You tell me. There's different know. explanations on it. One explanation is out of you and Monica came your four girls. They should be well. And out of them, God willing, will come more children. And out of those children will come more children. Basically, if you take a look at the chronology, if you take a look at the background of each individual, up to a million people can come out of them. Yeah. So when you save one life, you're not only saving one life. You can yeah. be saving a million lives. Yeah. Right? Because we produce. You have no idea how many kids have come up to me on the street. I said, oh, my God, you're Mr. Mamma. I go, yeah, who are you? Yeah, you don't remember me. I was like six years old. I was in your office, and my mother was crying, and my father was yeah. crying. And, right and you came to court with us, and now I'm a real estate agent. I'm a real estate broker. I'm this, I'm that. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Rum, first it, of all, yeah. for somebody, some kid to remember some adult that he remembers from like that kind of period in his life is just... So it's you're, just amazing. You're proud of yourself? I'm proud of the work that we've produced. Can you say you're proud of yourself? <laughs> proud of myself. I know you don't talk like that, but are you proud uh, of yourself? That's weird. That's weird, right? At the end of your I, day. I'm very happy with the results that my team has helped me to accomplish. And I haven't spoken too much Did, about Do you ever pat people. yourself on the back? you say way to go? Yeah. I, In the I wee think hours of the night? Yeah. Yeah. Look, look, we have this thing, right? Like when we go to court, like I go to court and some guy's been charged with every offense in the world, you know, this and that. And he's lied to immigration. He's done every bad thing. And I said, I'm going to go get that guy out. My One of my partners or one of the associates, ah, you'll never get this guy out. Yeah. There's no way you're getting this yeah. guy out. And I go and I come back and I like go. You know, I stick my <laughs> finger in their face and say, there you go, brother. The guy's out on the street. Yeah. And uh, it's the funny thing. Yeah, so those moments I take a little bit of extra pride in myself and I, you know, I, 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 I shove it in their faces. But it's also a learning lesson, right? The lawyers in my office have got to believe in the impossible because, um, you know, I, I, I yeah, tell them. Right. I, 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 you know, it's not like I'm a hustler of religion. 
But I tell them, I said, you know, you can't eliminate all possibility of success. I said, you can't do crazy cases. But you got to leave God a place to land the helicopter. You know what I'm saying? You got to give him an opportunity to spin some magic. And if you don't try, nicely put, there's no way in the world that he can land that sucker and hit the mark. So just give him a little space nice. and you never know what's going to happen. So that's that's part of the mentoring <laughs> that I nicely do. Put, nice. But it's but it's true. So do you think do you think that that you're accomplishing what you were put put out to made to accomplish? Yeah. So when I started in 1987 a little office in Dundas and Dovercourt and thought that, you know, we would own our own building, it would be full of some of the best immigration minds most dedicated team, people who love what they do. And they are really my family. I mean, they're not like people who work and punch a clock for me. They are people who are dedicated and who I place tremendous trust. You must. Because if I don't have trust in them, brother, it's uh, it's it's not good. Are you a good boss? You have to ask them. Yeah. I think I'm okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy... Are you okay with mistakes? People in my office, I have their backs. Mistakes are going it, to... It's funny, actually, because I'm giving a, a, a presentation at the Law Society seminar coming up next week on managing risk. And uh, one of the things that I put in, I said, you got to have the back of your team because they're humans. You can't run your practice without human beings. And humans make mistakes. Yeah. And if you're going to freak out on them, right, and you're not going to sort of analyze how this happened and figure it out in a positive way, you're just... In, you know, you're inviting a world of pain on yourself. So, so uh, you got to have the back of your people because you, you don't think I made mistakes in my life. I've made lots of mistakes in my career, but there was hundreds of thousands of decisions that I got right. A couple that I maybe have, maybe more than a couple I got wrong. Is is it a big deal to own your own building? Oh yeah. Is it a big deal? Yeah. Well, like existentially, is it a big deal? Yeah. I mean, obviously, it provides security for my family yeah. and. Uh, it's it's what I love. It's my new sort of passion. I love real estate now. We're buying another, we're buying another building. We're closing uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks. And um, it's uh, I I enjoy that. I get to learn something new, and I and I get to manage the the, the practice a little bit. So, well, what do you enjoy about owning a building? I like taking something that other people don't believe in. I yeah. guess just like my clients, yeah. and selling it and transforming it. Like you look at my client. Yeah, he overstayed, and he worked without status. And he did this. And he did that. But you don't really know the client besides that. So let me tell you a story, right? Yeah. And so then I sell the client. I, I, I clean him up. I shine him up. I tell <laughs> I, I tell you why you should believe in this guy and I uh, make it happen for Very them. Very cool. So the same thing. So I buy buildings that look like crap. Uh, other people don't see the potential. I see the poten- potential. So nobody wants to place that value on that piece of property. But I can see past the paint. You know, I could see past it. I could see what it could be. And uh, so far, we've been lucky. We've done all right. So that's what I like about it. All right, man. Good Thank job. you for doing this. I loved it, man. I it remember. was fun, wasn't it? It's good. It's yeah. good. Listen, we go way back, you and I, right? It's about time. So yeah. this is sort of a synopsis. I always tell my guests, I say, before I do this, I always think to myself, this interview is going to be a gift to you. It's a big deal. It's a, we, we just talked for close to two hours. Wow. And we covered a lot of your life and some of my life. and But mostly it was the relationship between us within those two hours i think it's very powerful but by the end of the interview i always feel like you know what man this was a real gift to me 
Like I love you have I love having you in my home. That's cool. I love sitting across from you at my table where where my son and I eat <laughs> and you telling me your secret that you never dive, drive down this road. That's a big deal to me. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. What well, well you know um uh I I hold on what what did I want to say? I wanted to say that um you know we haven't spent uh, a lot of time together uh you're busy i'm busy you know that's how but we see each other in bakeries and we see each other you know it's it's like picking up in the last conversation and so i've done a lot of interviews you know this one i was probably a little more scared than the average one because i never talk about myself you know they're asking me what do you think about the government's new immigration what do you think about this or that so those things i can handle with my eyes closed but i was terrified you're going to ask me questions about (laughs) about my my personal life yeah but i'm glad it went great and i really really appreciate you having me it really did and i I want to thank my listeners for listening uh hopefully you took something out of this show i think the big thing to take out of this is courage it's the ability to live in the moment to enjoy life, but to take it very seriously as well, sure. to uh, be who you are and not let people mess with you. I think that's <laughs> one of the lessons we take out of Giddy Mammon. And uh, I would ask you please to uh, share it if you can, um, because these are important shows. They really are. They're inspiring. Um, so thank you for listening. You have been listening to Hat Radio. It's the show that schmoozes. You like that? Show I that love schmoozes. it. Thanks, yeah, don't man. change his name. You were thinking of changing the name yeah, from you Hat saw Radio that. to something ridiculous. Schmoozings. No, forget schmoozing. Hat Radio You like beautiful. Hat Radio? Makes no sense, but so does our conversation. Just, yeah, it doesn't just, make sense, right? It makes no... What, what, what do you care? What, <laughs> we're, we're talking about all kinds of different stuff. So Hat Radio is just as good a name as anything. Oh, it's an interesting... <laughs> I like it. It's a good name. Okay, then I won't change it. it. Don't change it. I'm keeping it. Keep it. All right, thank you for listening, and God bless. In an increasingly complex world, Greif Philanthropic Solutions is proud to sponsor Hat Radio and the one and only Avram Rosenzweig. No one is better than Avram at simplifying the art of communication, providing inspiration, and unifying people of all backgrounds. GPS is there to help you navigate the charity landscape. Avram is there to help you navigate life. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I want to know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the high